you would turn this morning in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, Gospel of Luke chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 32. But I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 so we get a sense, uh, a little better sense of the context. If you remember in uh, verses 14 and following, Jesus had cast out a demon, and, and there were several responses. Two of them were, one was antagonism, that the um, people were saying it's by the power of the devil that he cast out devils. And the other response, another response was agnosticism, as people uh, asked him for a sign to test him. Uh, the last, when we looked at uh, 14 through 23, we looked specifically at Jesus' response to those who said he casts out demons by the power of the devil. This morning we're going to look at Jesus' response to those who were asking for a sign. Let's pick it up then at verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. This is God's word. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Well, God in heaven, we now come to these words of Jesus Christ, and we rely upon the Holy Spirit that's been given to teach us and to instruct us, to train us. And so, Father, we ask that the Spirit will do His work as only He can, that he would um, take these words of God and make them mighty in our hearts and uh, transforming, Lord, in our lives. And we'll give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Our text this morning is as sobering, I think, as uh, a, a text could be, because Jesus is talking uh, to good people, uh, religious people, moral people, uh, people that we would be very comfortable with, and Jesus condemns them for their unbelief, and maybe more specifically, uh, Jesus lets them know that their unbelief itself will condemn them, and and that people in the judgment day will rise up and, and uh, condemn them and, and uh, basically say, well, what in the world were you thinking? Can you, you imagine how awful it will be to be in hell as a first-person eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus? How awful it will be to, to be eternally in a place of judgment and condemnation, knowing that uh, you were there when Jesus was carrying out his ministry to save sinners. Uh, You saw what he did. You heard what he said. And yet you did not believe. You did not repent. And so you are eternally in hell, having been a first-person eyewitness. I mean, what could be worse than to be in hell, having seen and heard Jesus Christ himself? and yet not be being saved because you refused to repent. You refused in your self-righteousness to accept who he was, and so you condemned yourself and sealed your own doom. It's, it's a sobering thought. And one of the reasons that it is so sobering is because there are so many parallels between American Christianity and the religion of the, the people of Jesus' day. If you look at sort of what the makeup of first century Judaism, you see so many of the same elements. We have the Sadducees today. The Sadducees were the, uh, the um, sort of the elite, the social elite, the uh, theologically liberal leaders who love their positions of power and influence among the social elites. We have the traveling teachers and wonder workers. Just turn on your TV and, and uh, go to the religious channels, and, and you'll find there very similar things, people doing whatever they can do to gather a crowd and get into the pockets of the gullible. You have the Pharisees, the legalists, those who believe uh, that they're committed to following a moral code, or, or, or it could be they're committed to a particular theological system, and believing that in those things that they are somehow um, elevated in, in the sight of God. That because they follow a specific moral code, or because they promote a, and, and hold closely to a specific um, doctrinal system, that those things gain them some elevation before God. It in, in some way helps make them acceptable to God. And then you have the masses, theologically untaught, spiritually undiscerning, and often unregenerate. People who are good people in that they go to church, they, they believe in God, they, and, and they believe that they're good people. They believe that God loves them, and, and they're trusting in their, in their goodness and their good intentions to have some standing before God. I was just last week, not this week, the one before, but I was uh, flying out and uh, sat next to a lady from uh, Marne, Michigan, and so... Uh, there were people she knew, some of my cousins, and we were just having fun uh, playing um, just who knows who. And, and uh, this lady was about my age, I suppose, um, a good woman. 
very intentional about living a good life, uh, goes to the local uh, Roman Catholic Church, and, and very serious about being a good person and following the Ten Commandments. And, and yet, as I was talking with her, just sensed an impenetrable wall. How do you, how do you talk about the gospel in a meaningful way with someone who is convinced that they are a, a good person and striving to do good things and that uh, God is very, very pleased with them on, on that account? And, and that's so much what we're going to see that Jesus is facing in, in the crowds as he's uh, talking to them. This is, this is what he's facing. These, this is the makeup of the crowd. And Jesus finds that people are offended when he tells them about their need for a Savior. And you will find if you just start talking to people in West Michigan, they will be offended if you suggest to them good people, moral people, religious people, that they desperately need to be saved, rescued, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Many will be offended. And Jesus Christ condemns such people. This morning we're going to look at first just the gall, uh, the, the audacity of the unbelief, and then we're going to look at the grace of God, and then the guilt that belongs to those who refuse Him. It's a sobering text, but God has good things here for us to hear. Notice Luke says, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. It's very interesting, isn't it? The crowds are increasing. They're not, they're not dispersing. They're gathering. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 12, Luke will say that so many thousands of people are coming around Jesus. They're trampling on each other. And the disciples most certainly saw this as a good sign, that finally people are getting it. Finally, people are getting on board. They're finally recognizing the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, they're finally willing to sign on with Jesus' mission and get behind uh, Jesus', um, Jesus ministry. But that's not what Jesus sees. He sees thousands of people, and he sees rampant unbelief. He sees the agnosticism. He sees the antagonism. We address the, Jesus addressed the antagonism, as we said, in uh, verses uh, 17 and following. And now he picks up the, uh, this agnosticism. People who will say, well, I mean, all that you've done is very good, but if you really want us to believe in you, and if you want us to, to really repent, do something spectacular. Give us a sign from heaven. They're not willing to commit themselves at this point. They, they're interested, they're curious, but, but they're not willing to, uh, to repent. They're not willing to accept Jesus at his word. You see, agnosticism, it's very popular right, probably throughout the ages, but I think particularly we see it in our age uh, where agnosticism has become sort of uh, revered in some ways. You see, agnosticism, agnostics claim that there's simply not enough evidence to compel faith in God and in Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they don't deny there's a God. They would never do that. They, and if you want to believe in a God, that's, that's fine. But an agnostic would simply say that there's not enough evidence to compel faith in Jesus Christ. There's not enough evidence to compel repentance. And one of the reasons, of course, that agnosticism is very popular. It, it allows people to feel intellectually sophisticated and even spiritually interested without placing any prohibitions on your lifestyle. 
So agnosticism is very compelling. It offers the comforts of social acceptability. Even spiritual integrity in some sense. You can be a spiritually interested person, but you don't have to commit to anything. You can have earnest conversations about religious things and spiritual things and still sleep with your girlfriend. The benefit of being an agnostic is that in the end, you are still the Lord of your life. You still call the shots. You determine what is true. You determine what you will uh, accept and what you will submit to. The, The cost, of course, is that you lose your life because it's unbelief. And so in our text this morning, Jesus deals with agnostics, but a particular kind of agnostic. He's dealing with religious agnostics. These are Jewish people. They believe in God, the God of the Bible even. They believe in Moses. They believe in the Ten Commandments. They believe in the temple. They pray. They fast. They give to the poor. They go to the temple services. They participate in the religious festivals and feasts. They go to the synagogue services. They probably send their kids to the synagogue schools. They happily debate the finer points of rabbinical teaching. They're concerned about morality and obedience. They are convinced that they are the chosen people of God since they are the children of Abraham. And so they believe all of these things. Their agnosticism extends just to this one thing, the identity of this man, Jesus. That's it. And their agnosticism, if you would look at it, might on the one hand seem at least somewhat warranted. After all, think of what Jesus is asking them to believe. He's asking them, on the one hand, to believe that he is the very Son of God, that he and the Father are one. Jesus publicly says things like, I and the Father are one. He says things like, before Abraham was, I am taking the very name of God to himself. So that's what he's doing on the one hand. He's laying his identity right in front of them. But on the other hand, he's doing things like freely and publicly befriending known sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. He's eating with them. He's doing things that no righteous man in Israel would dream of doing. And so you hear, you have this this man that, that does these outrageous things on both hands. And he wants you to believe that he's the Messiah. So why would Jesus rebuke them so harshly? It would seem that their, dis- their unbelief would be somewhat warranted. And also, if you know your Bibles, you know that other people in the Scriptures ask God for signs. Remember Moses, when God says, Moses, I want you to go and lead my people out of Israel. Moses says, well, you know, could you give me some sort of sign? Because when I go back, they're going to say, who are you? So, so give me something. And God does. He says, throw your staff on the ground, and he does, and it becomes a snake. Pick it up, and he does, and it becomes a staff again. God gives Moses assurances in signs. Remember when Gideon was asked to go out to battle and to lead the hosts of Israel, uh, the forces of Israel, and and he says, Lord, could you give me a sign? And he he takes the fleece, and one night he lays it out, and and the dew falls all over and not on the fleece, and the next night all the dew is on the fleece and not on on the ground around. Twice he asks for a sign, and God grants it. Hezekiah, when he was told that uh, God would restore his health, asked for a sign, and, and God makes the sundial turn back an hour. So in light of those things, why does Jesus call them an evil generation? And in Matthew 12, it's even stronger. An evil and adulterous, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
Why is their seeking inappropriate? Why is their seeking evil? Well, because it's, it's not seeking in the interest of faith. They're seeking, the text says, to test him. They're asking for a sign to test him. In a sense, it's to taunt him. If you want us to believe in you, do something spectacular. You see, Moses and Gideon and Hezekiah, they're in his essence saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm willing to accept what you're saying, but, but I'm struggling with it. Would you, would you help my unbelief? That's not what these people are saying. They're saying if you want us to believe, if you want us to repent, the, the, the burden of the proof is on you. Do something spectacular. Do something in the heavens. Rearrange the stars. Give us a sign. Something that's just irrefutable if you want us to accept who you say you are. You see, it's, it's couched in obstinate unbelief, in a, in a decision not to believe. So they're saying, if you want us to believe, if you want us to repent, do something spectacular, but they have no intentions of believing. David Gooding writes this, the people who demanded another sign would not have been convinced by it or any number of signs. Their seeking of a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe, but only, if only adequate evidence were provided, but a rationalizing of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence they already had. Remember, these people had an avalanche of evidence in front of them. They had, they had all sorts of reasons to believe. Jesus had not carried out his ministry in secret. He publicly was healing lepers, incurable diseases. He was publicly giving sight to the blind with a word. He was giving, uh, making the lame to walk again with a word. He was raising the dead with a word. With a word, he calmed the sea. He created matter out of nothing as he fed the 5,000. This was not done in secret. And people were marveling and talking about it. And yet they have the audacity to say, you see, give us a sign. I mean, I just hope you, you sense the, how, how bold, how impudent this is. It's just audacious. I mean, the, the, the unmitigated gall of standing in front of the one who's given more signs than they ever could have asked or imagined, and then rather than falling on their face and believing in him, they ask for more signs. But the signs they already have have condemned them and have revealed their heart. John, Jesus says in John 15, 24, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen, and they hated both me and my Father. You see, the signs that they've already received have condemned them and exposed their hearts. They hate God. They're God-haters. Isn't that amazing? You, no one in, in, in that day would have... Would have been able to grasp that. The God-haters were the Romans. The God-haters were the perverse Greeks. The God-haters were the barbarians. Not the Jews. Not, not God's people. But yet Jesus says that's exactly what's going on. In fact, I think in, in verses 24 through 26, Jesus is saying that, that the, the, the masses, these people, this, this generation is is purposefully blind or blind because of demonic oppression. They're under the power of principalities and powers. 
So Paul writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, and the, and, and the devil had also blinded the minds of the Jewish people. In, in verses 24 through 26, Jesus talks about a, a man who is, is under spiritual oppression, but he um, cleans up his act, puts his house in order, the demon leaves, and, but the demon is sort of wandering around out in the spiritual wilderness, decides he's going to go back and check up on uh, his former uh, place where he lived, comes back, finds it's nicely put in order. It's all been cleaned up. You see, religion can do that for you. Religion can help you clean up your act. Religion can, can make you a more moral person. You just surround yourself with the right people. You, um, you come under the right encouragement. You get some accountability. And you can do all kinds of good moral things and, and put your house in order on a wide array of issues. The problem is you're still dead. And so the spirit comes back, this demonic spirit comes back, and he takes seven of his buddies with him who are more evil than he is, more evil than he is. And, and so the, the, the end state of the person is worse than in the beginning. Listen to what Jesus says there. He says that there is a greater evil, a deeper oppression than those who are committing externally immoral acts. The, the externally immoral person is, is not the worst person. There's a greater evil. The greater evil is the religiously moral person. That's what he's saying. The end state is worse than the first. The, the greatest evil, the greatest bondage, is the religious moral person. Not the externally immoral person. Now, why would that be? Because religious morality, you see, is greater bondage than flagrant immorality. Religious morality is greater bondage than, than irreligious or flagrant immorality. A prostitute on the street generally knows that her life is not what it ought to be, knows that, that she needs help from the Lord, but a, you see, a religiously moral person has no sense of how lost they are. If you talk to the prostitute on the street, it's very possible that she would say something like, I just can't believe that, that God would be that gracious. That might be her struggle. But if you talk to the religiously moral person, they would say something like, I just can't believe I'm that bad. I can't believe I'm... They would, they would be offended by that. I am keeping... Right? All these things I have done from my birth is what the young man said to Jesus. There's no sense of their need, you see. So you, you, they're, they're, you, they're just not reachable. As I'm talking to this lady on the airplane, I'm thinking, how in the world do I, where does the gospel have any connection here? There's, there's this, this, this impenetrable wall of confidence and so it's, it's greater bondage because they simply can't see it. But it's also a greater offense to God. Religious morality is much more offensive to God than flagrant immorality. Why? Because religious morality exalts itself before God. Now, I'm not saying that flagrant immorality is pleasing to God. He hates sin. But see, there's, why is it that Jesus ends up in the presence of sinners, and why is it that Jesus' anger is lit when he's in the presence of the Pharisees? 
It's not because he thinks the prostitutes are doing fine. But he's offended, you see, by, by people who will take their religion and take their morality and hold that up in the face of the living God as a ground for God blessing them, as a reason that uh, places God in their service, that God is obligated. And so when they would say things like, we are Abraham's children, Jesus was furious. These rocks could be Abraham's children. You, you, you say, you, you pray to the temple. The temple is, that's their religion, you see. And because they go to the temple, and because they pray towards the temple, they think they got God under the thumb, that God owes them something. They're good people. And so they exalt themselves over God. They refuse the righteousness of God and, and instead put their confidence in their own righteousness. They refuse to accept God's verdict on all mankind that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve His judgment. All are dead in trespasses and sins. And so good moral people, you see, good religious people simply can't hear that. That's why Jesus is incensed about them. And He's surrounded now by people in this bondage. These are good, moral, religious people, seven times more demon-possessed than the the demon-possessed man that he had just cured. The living God has given them eyes, but they refuse to see. He's placed the very Son of God in front of them. They refuse to accept and listen to him. In fact, Jesus will say, you study the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, and you refuse to come to me to have life. This is just evil. The unbelief, the agnosticism, it's evil. And Jesus calls it what it is. But then there's grace. Wonderful grace. Verse 29, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And so even though here they are taunting Jesus, just do something spectacular. Do something. Make us, you know, earn our faith. Earn our repentance. In spite of their, their wickedness, Jesus is willing on his terms in his time to give them one more sign, the sign of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Here was this prophet born very near Nazareth, commanded to go to Nineveh, wicked, wicked Nineveh, and preach that God was going to judge them, preach a message of repentance. And Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Jonah hated Ninevites. Jonah did not want God to be gracious. He knew what would happen if he went and preached this message. The Ninevites very well might repent and then be delivered and saved. Did not was not on Jonah's agenda of things to be desired. And so he just went the other direction. Of course, uh, he gets on the ship. The, the, the storm comes. The pagan sailors say, some God is angry. What shall we do? Jonah says, well, it's my God. He's mad at me. And, and you'll, you just need to throw me overboard. So they accommodated him. They threw him overboard. And sure enough, the, the sea goes calm and a great fish comes and swallows up Jonah and three days later spits him out on the, on the shore. And that Jonah now, the disobedient but delivered Jonah, goes to Nineveh and preaches the message that God had given to him. And just as he had expected and feared, the people of Nineveh repented. We read, they believed in God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And so you, here you have this man under the judgment of God, raised from the dead figuratively by the grace and the power of God, preaching a message of repentance. And God used it in a mighty way. And Jesus says, that's the sign you'll get. But it's a magnificent sign. 
Matthew points it out, it says specifically, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign that God will give will be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will be one who was not disobedient, but who became sin for us as he died on the cross, and he was placed in the heart of the earth, and three days he rose again from the dead. And that is the great sign that God gives to this unbelieving world. That's the sign pointing to the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the sign that reveals who he is and why he came. That's the sign that reveals that uh, there is a way out for those in the bondage of sin. If Jesus Christ has actually conquered the grave, having borne the penalty of sin, then he is a refuge for sinners. He can pardon the guilty. He can set captives free. He can give life to those who are bound in spiritual death. But you have to respond to it. You see, it's amazing here, the grace of God. In the face of Israel's obstinate unbelief, Jesus says, I will give you one more sign. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. To repentance. Well, all these things happened, of course, didn't they? Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went into the tomb. Jesus came forth again in three days. He gave them their spectacular sign, the most spectacular sign in all the world. And what did these men do with that sign? Well, you can read about it in Matthew 28, verse 11 and following. The Roman guards saw it all happen. They saw the earthquake. They, saw, they experienced the earthquake. They saw the stone being rolled away. The angels descended. And so they went and they told the chief priests all that had taken place, Matthew 28, and when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They got their sign. And they paid off the guards to lie about what had happened. And that lie spread among the Jews to this day. It's exactly what Jesus had predicted would happen. Remember, we're going to come in a couple chapters, Luke chapter 16. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had all of his blessings all of his life. Lazarus was this poor man that begged at his gate, and they, and they both die. And Lazarus, the poor man, ends up in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man goes to hell because he had no concern for the things of God. But there in hell, he's able to have a conversation with Abraham. And he says uh, to, to Abraham, Father Abraham, send someone back to my brothers. Warn them about the torments of hell. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's how powerful unbelief is. If you're not willing to believe this, there's no spectacular sign that's going to finally change your heart. God's given the most amazing sign in all the world. And if, but if you're, not, if you're not willing to listen to what, what he's written, what he's recorded, you see, that there's, there's nothing more that God can do. 
And so what, what, what we end up with then, you see, with these folks is, is just great guilt, condemnation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh are going to rise up. And they're going to do the same thing. They're going to condemn this generation at that great white judgment throne. Maybe you, you remember what it's like to feel condemned. When you did something foolish, something um, stupid or just wrong, and, and, and people pointed it out. What were you thinking? What are you doing? How can you be so stupid? These are, that, those are words of condemnation. And Jesus is saying that the Queen of Sheba is going to say to these Jewish people on that last day, what were you thinking? You see, she came from the ends of the earth because she heard a rumor about a great king. She had none of the spiritual privileges that the people of Israel had. She didn't have the law and the prophets. She wasn't raised in a godly home. She didn't have the temple and all of its sacrifices and services pointing to a Messiah. She wasn't there to see all that, that Jesus did. She wasn't there to see what Solomon did. She heard a rumor, and she said... That has the ring of truth, and she pursued it, and she found that it was all true, and she became a believer in God. And she'll say to the men of Israel, what in the world were you thinking? And the men of Nineveh, they didn't have any of the privileges of Israel of Jesus' day. They were wicked pagan people, and yet this, this, this smelly man came with his message. He became a sign. A man under judgment, raised miraculously to life, comes with a message of repentance, and they receive it, and they repent, and they're saved. And they'll stand up and say to these men, how, how could you miss it? That's what Jesus says. How do we apply this today? Well, as I've been just wrestling with this text, one of the things that jumps out at me, can you imagine how awful it will be to go to hell from West Michigan? How could you possibly go to hell when you have so many spiritual privileges? And not just West Michigan, where there are churches on nearly every corner, but but, but people will go to hell having spent their life in the church. Can you imagine anything worse than that? That you went to church and you, you adhered to the doctrines, you, you tried to live a good life, but you didn't repent. You didn't, you didn't fall on your face before Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and confess that you could do nothing to save yourself and, and that if he did not deliver you, you would not be delivered. You just tried to do the best you could with all the offense of that. Do you, do you get a sense of the weight of this? Do you, do you realize that people from West Michigan, people who've been in church all their life, will go to hell and the Queen of Sheba will rise up and say, what? How, how could you go to hell in West Michigan? How could, you, how could you not see? He was right there. He was presented to you in the preaching of the word. He was presented to you in the sacraments. You said you believed these things. How could you not repent? 
You see, friends, we have received the sign, the great sign, the spectacular sign. We've received it. You know the story. And that, that knowledge has obligations. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. That's how the first hearers heard it. When Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon, he preaches the resurrection. This Jesus whom you crucified, been raised from the dead, and God has made him both Lord and Christ. And people were struck to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? If Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you have to deal with Jesus, and religion is not dealing with Jesus. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to come with your sin, your truth, your failures, you see? And you've got to deal with Jesus Christ personally. And you can sit here Sunday after Sunday and, and, and maybe be offended that, that I would be pressing this this strong. Folks, I do not want to see any of you being rebuked by the Queen of Sheba on the last day. Because it can happen. Jesus says, unfortunately, that it will happen to many. Can you imagine what it will be like? I just think about Muslims who came to the faith, maybe through a radio broadcast, and, and suffered extreme persecution, yet they came to believe in Jesus Christ, having none of the privileges that you've had. And they'll say to you, what were you thinking? How could you be lost in the middle of the church? I just, want, I just want to press this for some of you who you know you go to church, you know you're trying to live a good life, but let me just ask you very specifically, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you, do you talk to him? Have you been on your knees before him? Do you long for him? Do you grieve your sin because of him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Because if you do, this is a wonderful story. Because, you see, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection means that Jesus Christ is King of kings. It means we cannot live any way we want. We have to submit gladly our lives to him. But it also means we don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to be afraid of demons. We don't have to be afraid of principalities and powers. We don't have to be afraid of governors. We don't have to be afraid of swords. We don't need to be afraid of death. We don't need to be afraid of cancer. We don't need to be afraid of, of great disappointments and failures in our life. We don't have to fear anything because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection means that in Jesus Christ, we are conquerors, that we have won. Sins are gone. The debt is paid. The full righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to you. The Father delights in you. The Father will never, ever let you go. And no matter how scary the world might seem, no matter how weak you may feel, God has his hand on you in Jesus Christ because the resurrection happened. And so let's live then believing. Let's live repenting. Day after day, throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and claiming the victory we have by him. Let me just end with this. If you don't know where you are spiritually this morning, I beg you to come and talk to me because you can know where, where you are. You can know as you confess your sin, as you repent, as you turn to Jesus Christ and you throw yourself on all that he is and all that he's accomplished, you can know. And if you don't know, friend, don't settle with that. Come and talk to me. Let's be a, a church where we're dealing with the realities and we're not settling for an external veneer of religion. But we're going to the gospel and we're going to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, you know every single one of us. You know none of us are righteous. And Father, you know those who belong to you by faith and through repentance have found the power of God, have been by faith united to Jesus Christ, and the fruit of that now is spilling out, Lord, sometimes dribbling out. But Father, you know those who are yours, and you know those who this morning have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, who have accepted a veneer of religion and good intentions as their hope. Father, I pray that you show those dear people that they have nothing if they don't have Jesus. Father in heaven, we do not deserve to be the recipients of your truth and your grace, and yet we thank you for it. Lord, these are eternal things. I pray that there not be a soul in this auditorium this morning who will enter eternity without knowing Jesus Christ. And so, Father, be gracious to us. Show your mercy to us. Help us. Save us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.